Well, this morning, I'm, I'm really excited because we're going be, we're, we're to be starting a new sermon series. I know some of that's probably hard to read. I posted this on Facebook over the weekend. Um, but we're, we're going to be looking at the seven churches, right? Letters to the seven churches that are found in the book of Revelation. And I've called this the series Shining Lights. Uh, Nick Burgess did this. Uh, I, I really like what he did with this, this uh, graphic here. It's, you know, Jesus triumphing over, over the, uh, the beast. Um, but he had some kind of, I don't know what he did with them, some red blends in there to make it really look kind of ancient, but also apocalyptic. Anyway, it, I'm calling it Shining Lights because at the beginning of the book of Revelation, the symbol that is used for each of these churches is a lampstand. It, it's reminiscent, I think, of Jesus' statement in the Sermon of the Mount, right, that we are the light of the world. He continues that our purpose is not to be hidden, but to be a light set on a stand for the world to see, right? That that our function is to illuminate the glory of God to the watching world. And so we want to be, as a church, a shining light to the nations. And so we're going to look at the letters to these seven churches to see kind of what things that they were doing well and what things they needed to do, you know, a little bit better. And so I'm going to, we're going to refer to this map each and every week. I got a zoomed in version because that's going to be really hard for you to read in there. This is Turkey, right? This is the, the modern day Turkey. Um, well, it's, it's called Turkey now. It wasn't cur- called Turkey back in the day. Uh, but you see there's some red. Let me zoom in on those, those cities. You see some, some cities with red boxes on them. Those are the seven churches, I didn't make it big enough, but if you look in the very bottom left-hand corner, there is a red star there. That is the approximate location of the Isle of Patmos. So John, who is the author of the book of Revelation, he was the one lone apostle who was not martyred, who was not killed for his faith. But tradition states that John's punishment for being a Christian from continuing to proclaim Christ from the Roman government, was that he was exiled to the island of Patmos, where he was forced to work in the salt mines there. And it was during this stint, while he was in exile on Patmos, that he was given this vision that became what we read as the book of Revelation. And so if you want to, you know, why don't you pull out your Bibles, if you want to follow along. We're going to open to Revelation chapter 2, and I'm going to point out a few introductory comments before we get into the text itself. So the book of Revelation, so John is here on that, at that red star, and the beginning of the book of Revelation looks at seven specific churches, and Jesus to them gives a commendation, a critique, and a comfort to each of them. And so as we go through the series, there might be churches that we've heard of before, and there will be likely of some that you're not familiar with. But there is a geographic rhyme and reason to these seven churches that we find in Revelation, right? The seven churches that are named and addressed. So if you look at this map, when the messenger carried, right, from Patmos, you know, John would have sent the book, the letter with, with, um, with the messenger back to, to modern-day Turkey. When the messenger who carried the book of Revelation went to the churches, this would have been the most natural path for them to follow, right? Through Ephesus, up to Smyrna, up to Pergamos, 
our English translations use slightly different. I didn't create this graphic. I stole it from someone. But you could kind of see that U shape, that horseshoe shape there. That would have been the natural path, the natural progression that the, 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 the carrier would have taken, which is the same order that we find in, in our books, uh, in, in the book of Revelation. Now, if you have that open at chapter 2 of Revelation and look at verse 7, the end of the first section says this, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. No, churches, plural. So the reader of the message is instructed to read and take heart to, 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 to you know, take heart to what was written to each of the, let, the churches. Plural. So these seven churches here that are listed on the map in, in our book were invited to, you know, read each other's mail, if you will. Right? Each letter was a prophetic word from Jesus to a particular context, but they were invited to learn from one another through this. Now what we're going to find in the coming weeks is that some of the messages were heavy on the encouragement but many of the churches, Jesus gives a far less favorable report. And so this probably would have been a source of embarrassment for these churches, right? Jesus is kind of putting on mom blast and encouraging everyone else to read it. But the goal of this was for the churches to be encouraged and sharpened by one another. This was not a closed letter, not a for your eyes only sort of time. Let me put the logo back on. So if the churches were instructed to learn from one another, I think this gives us, some 2,000 years later, even more cause to look at these letters and see if there are elements that we can apply into our own circumstances as well. You know that saying, right? If the shoe fits, we should wear it. And so I hope that over the next month and a half that we are able to look at these seven letters and experience the encouragement, but also the redirections that come from Jesus for our context as well. So let's take a look at the first of those letters. So Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read it, I'm going to go over a formula, and then we'll go back through it and look at the particular context of the, the Ephesian church. This is the introductory message to this, so there's a little bit more kind of logistical data I got to get out of the way. So follow along as I read. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduringly patient and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, if you list all of these seven letters next to one another, there's a formula that starts to rise to the surface pretty quickly. This formula is somewhat borrowed from what we find in the Old Testament, in in oracles, the writing of the oracles. And if you've been following along in our Bible reading plan, we've been uh, going through predominantly Isaiah right now. And that's what we find in Isaiah, a lot of oracles, a lot of these statements against nations that are in the surrounding region of the Hebrew people. And so just a quick note, the fact that Jesus is the one who is giving these oracles indicates it's just yet another indicator of his divinity, that he is God. He, he is doing and saying things that under he, kind of this Hebraic tradition, only God could say and do. So just again, another, you know, just add another tick mark to signs in the scriptures that point to the divinity of Jesus. Um, there's some descriptors that we see that will also show this as well. So here's the formula. Let me go through the formula. First, you have an introduction, right? The angel, which can also be translated as messenger. The Greek word angel also meant messenger. Ankylos also meant messenger. To the angel of the church in fill in the blank, write this. And then the author is next identified as Jesus with some depictions of glory, and those depictions are largely borrowed from what you read in the chapter beforehand. Chapter 1, verses 13 to 18. And then we get to the body of the letter, which has commendations and critiques. Jesus says, I know, usually linked with some sort of praise, and says, but I have this against you, with some reproofs if they're applicable. And then the letter closes with the statement, the one who has an ear, let him hear. Jesus said something very similar when he preached the parables in the Gospels. It's basically a saying that says, pay attention, right? If you can understand what this is about, pay attention to this. This is important. And then the letter closes with a a statement of comfort, a promise that the one who conquers or overcomes, depending on on your translation, with some type of future hope. Now, what I find really neat about this this formula, the the construction of these seven letters, is that formula is the same for all of them but many of the elements are changed, right? The same hope at the end is different, or it's not the same hope, or, 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 you know, Jesus is described with other types of language, and so it provides a very diverse picture of who God is and what provision looks like for him, or excuse me, looks like for us, and so each week we're going to take some time, and we're going to look at the three C's, the commendations, the critiques, and the comfort. All right, so if you still have that open, let's go back through that passage again, looking specifically, what are the words to the church of Ephesus? Now, the fact that Ephesus is the first of the churches listed makes a lot of sense. Uh, It makes sense geographically, as we saw on that map. It was the closest of the cities to Patmos, but also it was a very prominent city in that region. Even in the New Testament, right, the the church of Ephesus has its own letter from Paul, right? The letter to the Ephesians is is written to Ephesus. Paul writes to to Timothy, who was a pastor of Ephesus in 1 and 2 Timothy. So this this is a very well-developed church in the community. The passage begins with an introduction not explicitly naming, but a clear inference to the author, Jesus Christ. And the descriptor here is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, 
who walks among the seven lampstands, golden lampstands. Right, these two objects, the stars and the lampstands, are both identified. They're symbols, and, and what they are is identified in the earlier chapter. The stars are the representation of the angels, these heavenly beings, each one representing, kind of being a, a, a guardian angel, if you will, or an angel that overlooked each of the seven churches. And the lampstands, as I mentioned earlier, is a reference to the seven churches themselves. But note what Je- how Jesus describes himself, that he holds the stars in his hand and he walks among the lampstands. Right? This indicates his authority. He has authority over the angels. He has authority over the lampstands. And so keep that authority in mind because when he talks about removing the lampstand, that's going to be important when it gets to his criticism. Now, it's, <laughs> I think it's, this is kind of tongue-in-cheek, but it's evident that Jesus has taken some leadership classes because before he provides a re- critique, he has learned to soften that critique by giving some kind of condemnation, right? Give, or not con- condemnation, commendation, giving some sort of praise to them before he starts to get to the bad news. And so Jesus starts by expressing that he sees their work and toil. These are followers who have worked hard for his kingdom. He acknowledges the blood, the sweat, and the tears that have gone into following him. The next commendation deers with their discernment. They have tested teachers. They have found many to be false. They have held on to the truth. Later in verse 6, they're commended for, you know, Jesus gives them kudos for, for hating the works of the teachings of the Nicolaitans. We don't know who that is. No, nobody knows with certainty who the Nicolaitans are. But it's clear from the text that they are symbolic and representative, at least, of false teachers. One of the, the, the early church fathers, Irenaeus, who, who um, actually he would have predated uh, Hippolytus, who we read from this morning. He was very early, uh, second century wrote that he, he attributed the Nicolaitans to uh, followers of this deacon, one of the first seven deacons listed in Acts chapter 6, verse 5, Nicholas. Most scholars think that's just a guess. Could be true, might not be true. But the point of this is, I don't want us to get hung up on who are the Nicolaitans, but the point is they were false teachers. They were people who were drawing people away from God. And, and that teaching, you know, these false teachers were not anything new to the church back in the day. Right, in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 and 30, Paul is quoted. He says this about the Ephesians church, the, the, the church of Ephesus. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul is preparing them for the reality that there are going to be these false teachers. First Timothy opens very similarly. Be careful of these false teachers that are in your midst. Now, they're lauded for their discernment, and I think that this is relevant for us today because we live in a world that is kind of hyper-interconnected. You know, we've got the internet, we have social media. Anyone with a platform is able to communicate their theological opinions. There are many false teachers today, some of which are malicious, I think some are just misguided. But it's important for us as the body of Christ to have a sharp mind, to be rooted to the scriptures, and to invite the Holy Spirit's wisdom in us to help discern 
when we encounter some of these teachers, truth from falsehood. I would argue in the 21st century, one of the most significant errors in biblical theology comes from what is called the prosperity theology, or you might have heard it called health and wealth, the health and wealth gospel. And this is espoused by figures who have huge followings. Joel Osteen, Creflo Dollar. The essence of this teaching is that God desires his followers to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. If we just prayed for those things, then God's going to bless us with them. And so what happens as a result of that is if you pray for those things, and they don't happen, now there's, there's a problem with your faith. It's kind of the logical conclusion of that. You haven't asked with faith well enough. Okay, God and Jesus give some very, very lavish promises, but it's important for us to acknowledge that if you read through the bulk of the Bible, suffering is a part of the human experience. Suffering does not mean that God is not at work, as we sang with Waymaker, right? Even when I can't see it, I know you're working. I trust that you are doing things here. So the outward gift, and there are times where God is going to bless our socks off, and that is awesome, but that outward gift is not the mark of God's work in our lives. That it's not the only mark, I, I guess I should say. Here's just another example. I'm just, I'm just kind of trying to prime the pump for us, right? Bethel, mega, mega church in California. We sing a number of their songs here at, at our church. Um, you know, it, it's somewhat contentious. They, they say it's not the case, but there have been some reports of a practice coming out from them of called, uh, what do they call it? Soul soaking or grave sucking, they call it. And it's a practice where people lie on the grave of someone in an effort to soak up their anointing. And there's nothing like that in the Bible. Right? That, that's a little bit out of left field, I would say. Again, it's, it's unclear whether or not that's direct teaching from the church, but it's definitely evident that some of the, the leaders in that church have participated in this and taught others. And, you know, this doesn't even get to the outright heretical perspectives of, like, I'll just say the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, others, right? the, the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Right? They're, they're really willing to knock, I mean, you got to give them a lot of credit for being out there, sharing their gospel, knocking on doors, handing out pamphlets on the streets, but they deny the Trinity. They don't believe that Jesus Christ is divine, the Son of God. So there's a lot of messages out there that are contrary to what I believe is taught in the scriptures. Jesus tells us that we need to be wise, or gentle as doves first. That's important, an important piece. Wise as serpents, but yet gentle as doves. We need wisdom for this discernment, something that the Ephesians were lauded for. So we should take that to heart. Finally, in these commendations, Jesus praises their patient endurance. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, if I could summarize the book of Revelation, the purpose of the book of Revelation with one word, it was perseverance. It was written to help those Christians who were being abused, who were being killed, to hold fast to their faith, to, to kind of pull back that veil to reveal what's going on in the spiritual realm so that they can get a glimpse, these followers could get a glimpse that God is still on the throne, that he's still in control even if their circumstances scream otherwise. Right, this is not a surprising commendation for the Ephesians. Ephesus was a hub of the cult religions in the area. Right, the city was known for its worship of the Greek goddess Artemis. There were temples where they paid homage to different emperors in the Roman Empire. 
Domitian, who he was the emperor from 81 to 96 AD. He was likely the emperor who uh, was ruling whenever Revelation was, was written. And he, man, he brought a bunch of persecution to the church. But he described Ephesus as the, quote, guardian of the imperial cult. So worship of these, these uh, pagan or, or imperial um, deities was a huge part of Ephesus. And like I said, under Domitian, there were significant portions of the church were heavily persecuted. Jesus is telling the Ephesians, I see what you're doing. He sees that faithful witness of these Christians, and he wants them to know that it doesn't go unnoticed. He affirms that they have borne much for his name. Now, I would say this is an incredible take-home for us in this current age that we're living in. Not just that we need to stand firm in the face of persecution. I think that is a take-home. But it's the reason for the persecution of those first Christians. The earliest Christians suffered mightily because they refused to sell out to the Roman Empire. They would not bend the knee to the state, and they were, they were oppressed for it. In our current political moment, whether we find ourselves on the left or the right of the proverbial political aisles, we need to consider what is our allegiance to the state. We have a problem right now with Christian nationalism on the right. Several months ago, Donald Trump Jr. spoke to a group of young conservatives, many of which who are churchgoers, who are Christians. And as part of his speech, he, he was lamenting that Democrats have been playing hardball while, while they've been playing t-ball. And he goes on to say this, and I quote, We've turned the other cheek, and I understand sort of the biblical reference. I understand the mentality, but it's gotten us nothing, okay? It's gotten us nothing while we've ceded ground in every major institution in our country. And the crowd responds with cheers. Again, many of those people, Christians, who are cheering him on. I think his remarks demonstrate a clear escalation of the need for political gain by jettisoning the teachings of our Savior. That's what he's, he's leaning into. But the issue's on the left as well, where the party line of the left has become a religion of its own. You know, all of you probably know John Fetterman, former mayor of Braddock, current lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania, is running for the, seven, for the Senate. And, and some of his ads, you know, he's got all kinds of ads that pop up on Facebook, you know, about legalizing marijuana and things like that. But in particular, the one that struck me was his perspective of kind of towing the party line on abortion. But what was surprising was not his stance, but the language that he used about it. He said that the right to an abortion is, quote, sacred. Now, whether you agree or disagree, you know, with the pro-choice, pro-life movements, the fact that he was willing to call the right to an abortion sacred That is religious language. I think it shows that these often secularized positions of the Democrats have become their own civil religion that they expect people to follow in order to be genuine, you know, Americans. Is this a place where perhaps love of country and whatever flavor you choose has has taken over what it means to follow Jesus? And again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't love our country. I'm not advocating for anarchy, but our love of nation must be held in check, submissive to our love of God. Those first Christians were killed 
because they were not nationalistic, by th- because they refused to worship at the altar of Rome. And so maybe there's some lessons that we ought to learn in our priorities. All right, let's get back to the text. So we've looked at the commendations. Now we come to the criticism. Jesus said that the Ephesians abandoned the love that they had at first. Some translations say that they've lost their first love. Again, it's not entirely clear precisely what this means, but most scholars think that it is an abandonment of their love for God, but also a failure to love one another, right? Those, the, the top two commandments, love God, love neighbor. Remember, in the ancient world, love was not primarily an emotion. It was an act of the will, right? The, what Jesus is critiquing them for isn't, you know, that, you know, you've lost that love and feeling. That, that's not what he's saying here. But that God and his people have ceased to be a priority in their lives, Now, it's clear that this is a serious offense because of the consequence that Jesus issues as a warning. Either they repent, either they need to turn away from sin and return from their works from before, or he threatens to remove their lampstand from its place. Remember, this lampstand is symbolic of the church. I don't think this means that, you know, that that this isn't a threat to the congregants that they would lose their salvation. But if they fail to be a church that loves God, and others properly, that I think that they would cease to be a church body at all. Finally, the passage closes with words of comfort. And we have this formula I talked about before, he who has an ear, let him hear, you know, listen, pay attention. And then there's the comfort to the one who overcomes, the one who remains steadfast, the one who follows the directions of Jesus will benefit by eating of the tree of life in the paradise of God. And we should understand this as a euphemism for attaining eternal life, for dwelling with God for eternity. So what does this mean for us? I know I've tried to give you two take-homes, considering the need for wisdom and discerning and differentiating between good and false teachers. And I also encouraged us to to focus on uh, our need to not escalate our love of country above our fervor, above our allegiance to Jesus. But for the final take-home, I want to focus on the criticism that's levied against the church of Ephesus, because I think this, this focus on the loss of love should be another very relevant point for us to consider. Oftentimes, we read texts like this, and it would be very easy for us to, you know, look back and think, oh man, 2,000 years ago, they just couldn't get their act together. But I hope we can read this, right? You've lost your first love. You've lost your love that you had at first. And, and that it would be convicting for us as well to see in ourselves a failure to live into this. Here's what I think our take-home should be. The Ephesians were lauded for their works and their discernment of false teachers. So from the outside, it was evident that they were doing all the right stuff. But Jesus, who pierces the heart, recognizes that there was something internally. There was a lack of love. So, in this context, what it means to overcome has to be more than just theological vigilance. It requires us to take up the posture of Jesus, to love God with our whole being, to love our neighbor as ourself. I was speaking to a friend last week about, some of you might remember this incident, it was probably about 12 years ago, 
uh, maybe 10 years ago, but R- Rob Bell wrote a book called Love Wins. It's a book that's about basically Christian universalism. And it was followed by a tweet by a guy by the name of John Piper. And all it said three words. His tweet said three words. Farewell, Rob Bell. Right, he basically wrote this guy, this pastor, off because of this work that he had written. I think it's an apt anecdote to, dis- to explore this cultural moment we live in because we are so often more focused on being a theological watchdog than we are at loving others in our midst. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't use discernment. I just said we should use discernment. I've read and I thoroughly disagreed with Rob Bell's book. I cautioned students, that because I, I this was when I was working at Pitt, on the pop theology of the book. I try to help them connect to a robust biblical theology. Right? We need to give credit to the fact that Jesus gives credit. We need to connect that Jesus gives credit to the Ephesians for the rebuking of false teacher. But it is clear that the sole action of being a gatekeeper to solid Christian doctrine is not enough. This is like the parable that Jesus told, Luke 18. Right? Pharisee and the tax collector go up to pray. Pharisee gloats about all the things that he's been doing. And he says, thank goodness I'm not like that tax collector over there. Jesus tells us it's not the Pharisee, but the tax collector who goes home justified before God. But we read a story like that, and we're so quick to do the same thing. God, thank goodness I'm not like that Pharisee. But the truth is, I think so often we are. God wants more than our works. He wants our hearts. This failure to love God and his people was serious enough to warrant the erasing of a fellowship before the face of God. I just want to encourage us, may that never be a judgment that we have to face here at Restoration Community Church. That we're just going through all the right motions, that we're out there fighting for the right beliefs about God, but that we fail to put God first in our lives. That we would allow our love of country to eclipse him or to be dismissive of our neighbor. I want to encourage us to always treat others with respect, to always focus on God so that our lampstand can continue to shine bright, not only in the presence of God, but to the world, the communities that we live in. I'm going to give you a couple reflections, and then we're going to close. So some things to think about. I'll post them on Facebook. How do you determine if the Christian teachers you lean on are drawing you closer to God or providing errant theology, right? What's your litmus test? How do you figure that out? And as I say every time, treat me the same way. Take everything I say with a grain of salt. Connect the dots of what I'm saying to what the Scripture teaches. Don't just believe it because I said it. Second, what does it look like for our nation to repent, at least the Christians in our nation, to repent of this political idol that we've created, both left and right? Lastly, what good work for God do you inadvertently use to measure and evaluate your relationship with God? Is it prayer? Is it service? Is it how often you read your Bible? What is that metric that you use to say, all right, I'm on the right path with God? Because I think when we go down that, it can give us an excuse to not give our heart because we're just going through those motions. All right, let me pray. Lord, as we look at the letter 
the words that you spoke, the words that were penned to the church in Ephesus, may we take them to heart. May we be commended and continue to strive for excellence in following you and doing the works, knowing our toil, that we would have wisdom and discernment to, to see these messages that are the antithesis of the gospel in our midst. But Lord, may we also not fail to continue to love you with our will. As the Shema says, that we would love you with our, our heart and our soul and our strength. Lord, the fullness of our being would be fixated on you and that we would love others in, the, in that same vein. Lord, guide us in this. In Jesus' name, amen.